0: Welcome to the Adirondack Lantern Podcast, the official podcast of the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association, where our major goal is to foster understanding of the Underground Railroad history of Northeastern New York and to celebrate its significance and its relevance to our own time. Welcome to the Adirondack Lantern Podcast, Season 1, Episode 4. My name is John Mitchell and I'm honored to be a board member at the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association. I'm also joined today by some fellow board members. We have Ms. Robin Cadell. How are you today, Robin?
1: I'm fine, how are you, John?
0: Excellent, I am fantastic. And we also have board member Ms. Andrea Bear. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, exciting to be here, very
0: good. <laughs> and our board president, miss Jackie Madison
3: this is terrific I can't wait for everyone to hear this podcast oh, definitely
0: yeah. and we are also joined by one of our newest board members and our organization treasurer Ms. mrs. Barbara Chris how are you Barbara I'm
4: doing well today thank you so much it's so happy to be here
0: And thank you to have you on the podcast today so um, we're coming out of 4th of July weekend you know um, anybody have anything exciting that they did yesterday
1: Yes, I went to the Michael B. Anderson, I have his initial right, Michael Anderson Mural Dedication. I was there too. Yes. Mm -hmm. We sang. Yes, you did. It was fantastic. It was um, beautiful. It was well done. It was great to see his family, his wife, his daughters his sister, his best friend, and his wife. Go ahead, Barbara. You were there, too. <laughs>
4: no, it was it was a great evening. I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better, should I say, celebration after, you know, this last month, you know, Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday. It was a great way to start acknowledging, you know, the people who actually contribute to our history.
2: Mm-hmm. I well, well, I did have something exciting too. After a year and a half, this is the first Sunday my church got together for one service, and everybody came out. The church was full, and we were just dancing and singing and celebrating, seeing each other's face. say <laughs> so it was wonderful. First assembly of God in Plattsburgh.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, that definitely sounds like everyone had a pretty, pretty exciting.
3: Oh okay. yeah, my my day was barbecue. Oh, <laughs> <The> traditional, <laughs> huh? Oh.
0: That was my day as well. Anything exciting that you you had there?
3: Oh yeah, we had some good food. Yeah. Macaroni salad, <laughs> uh, the hot dogs and the hamburgers and Thank chicken. You. Yeah, uh, enough so numbers? that we'll. Yes, I do have some. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. I also went to the Depot Theater and I saw The Mountaintop, and that was a very captivating uh, play. It's about Martin Luther King the night before his assassination. I don't want to give it away. If you have a chance to see it, go see it.
3: Mm.
0: And so, for our listeners, where's the Depot Theater at?
1: It's in Westport, New York, at the Westport Trade
0: Station. Mm. Mm. Excellent. The um, yeah, I think I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm real interested in seeing that.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Robin has some other th- uh, little tidbits about the Westport, but we'll save that for later. Yeah, we'll save that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so
0: without Substance. any further ado, you know, we're going to get right into uh, mm-hmm. uh, this month's episode. We're very excited about July. Um, we're, part of what we're doing uh, this month is trying to honor honor the legacy of. Uh, Solomon Northup. Uh, But now we're going to uh, move into our underground track segment. And Robin, why don't you tell us about our guest today?
1: Renee Moore is a community organizer, project manager and program coordinator for cultural and political activities. A graduate of Skidmore College, Renee is most noted for Solomon Northup Day, A Celebration of Freedom, an annual event based on Solomon Northup's autobiography, 12 Years a Slave. Renee conceived and founded the day as a private individual in 1999. The Library of Congress recognized her work with the reception in 2000 and place the story of Solomon Northup in the permanent collection of its American Folklore Folklife Center. Since its inception, the project has honored the legacy of Northup's life and that of all African-Americans as part of American history. Hello, Renee.
4: Hello. Hello, everyone.
2: Hello. Hello.
4: <laughs> Glad to hear your voices.
2: Same here, Renee. Same here. This is Andrea Baer. Nice to talk with you.
4: Hello, Andrea. (laughs) Good to hear your voice again.
1: Okay, so, Renee, so now you have left the North, and you are in Washington, D.C. So, what is it like for you to live in the place where Solomon Northup was kidnapped?
4: Well, many people uh, right here don't know that this was once called Washington City, and he was abducted from here and then taken south. His papers, uh, identification, and everything was stolen from him in Washington City. And then upon his return, uh, when he was uh, in free, he was uh, when he was liberated, I should say, he tried to bring his captors to justice in Washington City, but it was a State, that he had no rights at all, so that uh, it didn't happen until he returned to Boston Spa, where he um, tried to uh, bring his captives to justice there as well as Saratoga County. So
1: do you have any plans of doing any um, activities there to make Washingtonians
4: more aware of this history? I do not. I, I I have not even um, not even thought about it. Really, they seem to be pretty much. They have their other local heroes and people that they, you know, um, talk about regularly. Josiah Henson, Douglas, Sojourner Truth. Uh, Maryland seems to hold most of the history um, in their in their region. So, uh, no, I haven't, really. Okay. I uh, do speak to organizations. I have a website. I have 102 slides in a presentation, and so um, I've had a, a few requests down here, and I have done those uh, presentations for people who are interested in the history
6: overall.
1: OK, so let's jump back to your family history in Saratoga. So were your ancestors Native New Yorkers, or did they relocate from elsewhere?
4: We're basically Native New Yorkers. My aunt and uncle who lived in on Franklin Street in Saratoga in downtown. They were there, I would say, in Saratoga for almost 100 years. And uh, many African-Americans came to um work at the uh, Uh, racetrack thoroughbred races, because at one time um, the jockeys were african American, And so uh, there's a lot of racing history that blacks were personally involved in there. And as a matter of fact, my uncle, who uh, uh, was involved in racing, his name is in the National Museum of Racing there in Saratoga Springs. And my aunt, I worked for a wealthy white family on the east side of uh, Saratoga Springs on Sorkiller Street. So uh, the house I lived in there, even though I was a Skidmore graduate, I could not have bought with the prices that Saratoga yields right Mm -hmm. now. Um, But then they bought a house with very little and kept it for at least 75 years.
1: While growing up and being educated in Saratoga, did you ever hear of Solomon Northup? Or any black history for that matter?
4: Not at all. That's what really got me excited was I saw the film, uh, the docudrama, PDS 1984, Gordon Park. And when I discovered that uh, Saratoga was a part of this story, I got, uh, very excited about it and pretty much put it in the back of my mind until I saw the exhibition at Knott Memorial uh, by um, Clifford Brown, Professor Brown, PhD of the Poli Sci Department, and his students put together um, a large exhibition on his life. And I attended that exhibition at Knott Memorial and was just overwhelmed by the fact that all this history was sitting right under our nose. And um, we did not know, you know, of his story. And I got it in my mind that very day that something had to be done about it. And the first thing I thought about was the historical marker, Mm -hmm. which actually came a little bit later. And so I established on the North of Day in 1999 in hope of not only bringing his story to light, but I felt like his story represented so many untold stories.
1: So what was like the black population of Saratoga? Has it always been, you know, just how big has it been, do you know?
4: I think they were probably about 12% of the population. And then after urban renewal, um, they were removed, many. Uh, lost businesses and places to live and down to about three percent of the population in modern day uh, saratoga springs it's a very um, expensive enclave i guess you could say and quite xenophobic in its in its uh, makeup and so um even attending skidmore i was one of the few at that time there are more now uh people of color but um, that that was not the case many years ago
1: so when you became aware of parks drama and also of the um, exhibition what was it about solomon northup that intrigued you why did this story
4: intrigue you what intrigued me about it was of course that it happened right here in this little town he was abducted that there were, in fact, free African-Americans in this region, and that slavery was supported not just in the South, but supported in the North as well. And I thought this story was, had to be told in order to bring focus not only to the American, African-American community, but to the community as a whole, that people of color, in fact, had a long-term history. Uh, in the North Country as free people and educated people. He could, you know, read and write. And, of course, he played the violin in places like um, uh, what is now the Beverly and what was then the Grand Union Hotel and major um, places throughout the city.
1: When you had the first Solomon Northup um, day, what was the community response there in Saratoga?
4: <laughs> well, it, it was not welcome in the early days. Um, it was quite a task. I had a few very close friends who um, were uh, supportive, but in the early days, I, I was exhausted, really. I had to do every aspect of creating the event. And including driving down the road with the podium in my in the trunk of my car because they had to borrow a podium. The city didn't have one that they could loan me um, for the event, and the direct then director of the visitor center relegated me to the back um, the back porch of the visitor center because she indicated that I could not have the event inside the visitor center. So. Actually, it ended up pretty well because the back of the visitor center turned out to be a lovely uh, venue. It has an overhang to keep the, the rain away. And uh, there was a garden club and they um, began to care for the flowers back there. So it turned out in my favor in spite of everything.
1: Since the popularity of the Steve McQueen movie 12 years a slave. What do you think about Northup becoming internationally
4: recognized? Steve McQueen's uh, film um, and Brad Pitt under Plan B Productions uh, brought a lot of attention to the issue of the American history and slavery and certainly more attention to me as well. you know, I was just doing this in one small town in the U.S., but with the film, it became nationally and internationally known, and I got uh, I received interviews and questions from different parts of the world as well as all over the United States. The film itself is not uh, accurate, as is parts uh, Parks' film, uh, to the autobiography, but uh, it does... I feel work to open people's eyes about uh, the history, some of the history that has not been told and it brought attention to slavery and in part, although nothing could be as brutal as what really happened in real life. So
1: if you could ask Solomon Northup one question What would it be?
4: Hmm. (laughs) How do you think we're doing? (laughs) Okay. Um, I think that uh, he might say that the uh, struggles of African Americans now at this time in history. is still a, a quite a task that he had to per- persevere and seek freedom constantly over his 12-year ordeal and i think in some very real way we continue that struggle as african americans in this country um, i would ask him also where is this resting place because we are not aware to date Um, where he's buried, where his final resting place was. And if you look at American history overall, I would imagine that there are enslaved Africans in the ground all over the place, everywhere you set, because they wouldn't have been necessarily uh, marked. So um, we don't know where he's buried, and I think in some ways that keeps the story alive. It keeps it open as to how important it is to know our history as in people who were brought here by uh, who enslaved and brought here and endured immeasurable hardships and survived. So when we complain now today about a struggle, we we really have nothing in, in compared to what our ancestors uh, suffered
3: um renee i have a question for you uh this is jackie hi nice. hi how are you uh, right. I, I wanted to uh sort of ask you what is happening today with the black lives matter and uh all of the activities especially around uh floyd's death uh how solomon northrop would have felt or what you think he may have um
4: Could you- Speak a little louder, I can't hear you.
3: Okay, can you hear me now?
4: Ah, now I hear you better.
3: Okay. I was uh, wanting to know with everything that's happening with the Black Lives Matter activities and with what happened with Floyd's death, um, what could you sort of do some comparison to what happened with Northrop with those experiences?
4: Well, Black Lives Matter. That's a a big one. Um, Yeah, I mean, it it looks so much like we, we haven't been standing still, but it's certainly uh, a little bit disheartening that we would have to ask to be acknowledged as human. And so Black Lives, yes, do matter. And should we have to say they matter at this stage? Um, We shouldn't have to, but apparently we do. And um, But we saw with this recent uh, activity after George Floyd, we saw people of all races, creeds, colors, and everything join into the fact that uh, these injustices uh, have gone on too long and they should not be tolerated in a free society, a democracy at all. It, it slaps in the face of democracy, as mm-hmm. does, does the uh, Voting Rights Act issue. there's just something we should have already fought for and should be um, done with and accomplished, I should say. Uh, but yes, there is a lot of pushback. Uh, I was glad to see whites very much involved, but you know, whites were involved when they crossed the Pettus Bridge. Mm. So um, it's always been people of all color and of of, of good faith and understand the three great books as what it means to to be human and what um, God has promised all of us cannot be taken away. And so, um yes it's it's nice to see Black Lives Matter and the young people very much involved in what's going on. And thanks to technology, uh these injustices are visualized, so it cannot be denied because I, I dare think that without a photograph or the filming of what happened to George Floyd, we would not have seen any justice regarding uh his murderer. So
3: Hmm. Um, I don't know
4: if I answered your question or not.
3: Yeah, actually, you did. And you actually touched on uh, the voting thing, which I I think is very important in light of
4: everything that's happening. So thank you. Well, voting, I might add, I mean, that's at the heart of democracy. So as long as the voting rights in in question the voters, and particularly people of color, cannot call themselves citizens.
2: Uh, Renee, there's not much left for me to ask you because my two <laughs> colleagues here has really picked up on everything, but um, if you were to be in a room with some of these young activists and from the Black Lives Matter, or even from small um groups at colleges or anything like that, and knowing all that you've been through back in the early years, putting this organization together, what would, you, what would be your advice to them to encourage them not to really give up um, to keep the fight going. Because, Renee, to tell you the truth, sometimes I feel nervous because I feel like even though we've come a long way, I feel like we're stepping backwards sometimes. Like the things i am seen happening now, it's, it's like we've been through that and passed that. Why are we going backwards again? So... Talk to the young people who are listening and who will go on our website and listen to this interview, knowing the fighter that you are f- from back then, what would you say to them? I would say never take no
4: for an answer.
2: Good, yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> and uh, you have to persevere. When I was putting down in the North of day together, trying to put it together, I was... In it by myself. That was every aspect of it. It's exhausting. You have to keep going back, and there's typos, and you go, oh my goodness, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there's things that happen that uh, kind of can discourage you or make you feel like you don't have enough of whatever it takes. We all have enough of whatever it takes. We have enough energy. We have enough gray matter. We have enough um, uh, uh, history, our descendants in my opinion, have already paid a heavy price for, the, for us to be where we are today.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And so they have to keep working and pushing and striving for the, the things that make us whole, that make us whole and complete citizens. Now, that is the daunting task. And yes, we should not have, we should not have to ask for our lives to matter and for uh, these things at this point. And I think Solomon would be very upset about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, but um, I would encourage young people, but I mostly encourage young people to uh, maintain some kind of faith, whether that's Islam or Judaism, or you need a, you need a faith base to be able to keep going in the face of adversity. Mm -hmm. I certainly had a lot of pushback when I got started. And thanks to, People like um, the Mastriani family later on, and and as time went on, I started, it was 15 years in doing it, but as it went on, uh, more and more people, uh, just a handful of really important people, Barb Thomas, the League of Women Voters, and so on, pushed forward. They knew um, that it needed to be done, and... uh, so I would tell young people of all colors, whether it's white or black, to so just keep, 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 keep the faith and keep pushing, and keep making things happen for the next generation. Because mm-hmm. there's those of us are going to pass away. We're getting older. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, but I'd also ask young people to. I really feel that we as African Americans buy into the capitalist capitalism and. Uh, consumerism Mm -hmm. way too much that we need to step back from being uh, heavy consumers to really look at what power we really have. Because what you buy or put on or the car you drive Mm -hmm. or the weave or the lashes or whatever you're going to do doesn't improve your overall condition as a human being and a citizen of this country uh what matters is that we have a safe place to uh call our own and that we are full citizens and we're in my opinion not safe with um uh what is it qualified immunity i think Mm. as long as qualified immunity is on the books, we're not safe because you know there's always that protection for uh police officers that I don't think they should have. They're civil servants. Mm-hmm. They really work for the taxpayer and not against us. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of work to be done, especially with voting. And uh, there's been heavy pushback uh, uh, on that, thanks to, uh, what is her name, Stacey Abrams. But yeah. pushing to, once they take away voting rights, they're really trying to take away democracy. I want to make that clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's more than just cast your ballot, put it in a slot. You know, you, you have to see the whole picture and how important it is that when you spend your money, you need to be a whole citizen when you do it. Right, right. And so when I ask young people to pull back, from the shopping and the buying, is that we cannot buy our way
5: to full citizenship.
2: Mm -hmm. Excellent answer, excellent answer. And, and, you know, another thing that makes me think is what's going on now with our history being taught. Do you think, you know, that um, history will be told since some of the states are now curtailing what is being taught in schools and they're pushing back on what the new... I want to say we're we're trying to come up with more history to teach the kids of the real truth of what's going on and it's being pushed back now and this cookie-cutter kind of history is repeating itself again. The same old things, the same old things are not showing, you know, the real truth of what um, black people went through back in the days. So do you think the truth of the history will be told? Well, the question is when oh yeah exactly exactly
4: <laughs> yes it, it needs to be told and the first part would be um, getting the history books in the school system very early on elementary school mm-hmm. you know and forward uh, seeing uh, people of color in the books and seeing the history the real history not the covered up history mm-hmm. um divulging the important contributions that African-Americans have made to this country. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And really, um, children need to know very early on so that the respect is there. You know, because I think Dylan Roof would have never done what he did if early on in his life, he'd been exposed to African-Americans. And I think the reason he sat there for a few minutes because when he walked in, they welcomed him Mm -hmm. in. And I don't think that he at all realized the beauty and nature of the African when he got invited in and sat down. Wow. And he proceeded, I guess, because he thought he had to at that point. But he must have, in those moments, Mm -hmm. realized how gracious, and wonderful people of color are, and they always have been that way. Right. And we remain that way, but we need to be that way toward each other, and we need to maintain the fact that we cannot buy our way into democracy with things. And we buy the biggest and most expensive of things because we want to be included. Mm -hmm. We want to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And there really is no normal until the history books reflect who we really are as people. The truth. And we have more than slavery to be proud of. But, you know, slavery was brutal, but we have to be proud as black people about Mm -hmm. slavery because we survived the most horrendous model of slavery in the world. And through all that brutality, we still remain a strong and vibrant people. And so we see this nasty history, but we also need to know that we are the great people that we are and move forward to the greatness by treating one another with a graciousness and a respect bar none.
2: Perfect
0: yes renee that was fantastic thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us once again you know and uh you know we uh couldn't think of a better person to have on for this our fourth episode and one that we're looking to honor the the history of of solomon so thank you again for your time
4: thank you thank you thank you all of you thank you you. even though i'm not seeing you (laughs) Yes yes I must say I'm disappointed that Skidmore didn't continue following North update it was there for two years and mm-hmm. I guess they just inside that they didn't want to be bothered it's my alma mater yeah. but um, I'm so glad the North Country is considering is continuing it mm-hmm. in perpetuity um, and others are being invited to uh, chime in because it's not just about me and it's not just about Solomon North of Descendants. It's mm-hmm. about all of our history mm-hmm. and who we are as a great people. Okay. Thank it you. Again.
3: Thank you, Renee. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks.
0: Bye. Wow. So it's always very interesting listening to Renee. I remember when I first met her a couple of years ago when she came to the celebration that we did uh, for Solomon North of Day down in Keysville. Mm-hmm.
2: Renee's a walk in knowledge. I tell you, it's, it's, it's just enlightening listening to her. I wish we had more time to hear all the stuff that she's doing, but uh, it, was, it was brilliant.
0: It was really interesting just hearing about how she started that whole yes, program and yes. uh, the hurdles and stuff that she and went through. Great
2: advice to the young people.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: She is certainly a role model for youth uh, to show to them that they can and are able to do anything they put their minds to.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad she was uh, gracious enough to join us. Oh, so now we're going to move on to our Adirondack moment.
1: Hi, this is Robin Caldwell. I'm here with Garth Hood. He is our uh, representative from the Anderson Falls Heritage Museum in based in Keysville. I will tell you a little bit about him. He grew up in Port Kent and graduated from Alcebo Valley Central School. He holds a bachelor's degree in music from the University of Vermont, a master's degree in music from Binghamton University, and a master's of library science degree from the University at Albany. He is library media specialist at his alma mater, Alcebo Valley. He is vice president and treasurer of the Port Kent Cemetery Association. And president of the Enerson Falls Heritage Society. Welcome, Garth.
5: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: So, tell us how COVID impacted your operation last year. What did you do? Well,
5: <laughs> we uh, we weren't able to open the museum last year at all, and we normally have what we call a summer speakers series, where we have uh, once a month we have guest lecturers come and present. Uh, 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 give a presentation on some item of historical, local historical interest. We had to cancel all of those. Um, So really, we were pretty shut down. We were able to hold our our monthly meetings over Zoom. We we did that to sort of keep things going in the background, but uh, our our public operation was pretty well closed. But uh, one thing we were fortunately able to do was in the fall... um, We were able to do uh, a a few historic marker dedications, which is something else that we do. Um, We had one for Schuyler Island and uh, the role that it played in the Revolutionary War when when Benedict Arnold and his fleet were fleeing from the British. And we had one for um, the um, Port Port Kent to Hopkinton Turnpike And we had the one that we did here at uh, the North Star Underground Railroad Museum. Uh, It was uh, because this house had belonged to Herbert Estes, who who had been uh, a prominent industrialist here in in this area.
1: So can you give us a short history of this society? How did it form?
5: Uh, Actually, I'm not so familiar with the formation of that group because I wasn't here at that time because I
1: said that I read online that it was organized in 1980 and it operated at the Keysville Civic Center from 1984 to 2010 and then it moved to your present location which is 96 Clinton
5: Street yep that's that sounds right (laughs) okay
1: and I'm not sure what does your uh what are your archives what do you hold
5: uh, well we have we have some quite a bit of genealogical stuff and uh, we have some records for some of the local businesses historical records uh, we have a lot of photographs historical photographs we have some artifacts uh, we have an old telephone switchboard that came from the, the Keysville telephone company and um, i trying to think what else we have. We have some artifacts from the uh, um, Keysville Off-Sable Chasm and Lake Champlain Railroad, or Port Kent, I guess. What was it called? Port Kent Off-Sable Chasm and Lake Champlain Railroad was what it was called. It was a, a very short line that ran from Port Kent into Keysville.
1: I wish they had it down. Yeah. it would be fun.
5: Yeah, it was, it was a pretty neat little uh, railroad. Um, but we have, you know, things like uh, a few sections of rail and... Uh, we have some parts of railroad cars uh from from that um so so those are the kinds of things that we have yeah.
1: so do you get your things from donations uh or do you actively like maybe go on ebay and search for things so how do you acquire your material
5: i would say just about all okay. of our stuff comes from donations really yeah uh we're we're very lucky in that respect we uh, we do get donations from from people around here.
1: So when are you gonna open up this season?
5: We are, I th- think actually we're gonna s- be open starting, let me think, today's Monday. I think we're gonna be open starting tomorrow, if right. I remember correctly. Yeah, We're. I know we're opening early in July and I think it's tomorrow. Okay. Uh, we're going to be open, our, our typical open hours are going to be Tuesdays from 9 to 12, and Thursdays from 10 to 12.
1: Okay. So do people have to call it in advance? Like what kind of protocol are you having people just come?
5: Or? No, we don't need to have anybody call in advance unless if, if someone wanted to set up a special time to come in and maybe talk with uh, – we, we have some people who are like uh, – who know more about the genealogical stuff – uh, if somebody wanted to call ahead of time and set up a time to meet with somebody like that, uh, they could do that. But uh, during during the regular opening hours, there, there's no need to call or anything like that. We are asking, uh, for now, we're asking people to wear a mask because we're, we're still a little bit concerned about COVID.
1: So do you have any new exhibits?
5: We are... We, we were actually kind of brainstorming about that last week, and we're putting some stuff together. I th- think it's going to be kind of a, uh, along a theme of uh, honoring military people who came from the Keysville area and the roles that they played in uh, some of the earlier wars, like the Civil War and uh, World Wars One and World War II. Um, and... We, we have had, I, and we're going to keep it up, we've, we've got a nice exhibit uh, about the uh, what was called the Peanut Railroad, which I was mentioning earlier, the, the one that ran from Port Kent to Keysville. So uh, those, those are going to be our main exhibits at this point.
1: Okay. So next year is going to mark your museum's 10th anniversary at the location where you're at. Are you planning in advance for anything happening there? At this point, we haven't really thought it's
5: about up. about that very much.
1: I don't have any more questions. Jackie, do you have any questions?
3: Yes, I would like to uh, ask you a couple. Um, primarily, I know you say you were closed um, last year, and you're just opening this year in July. Uh, have you looked at other options of getting your information or getting your exhibits out to the public?
5: Actually, I'm glad you asked that, because uh, I did want to mention, we while while we were closed, we did a lot of... Uh, work uh, towards our website. We, uh, we actually were able to get a grant to hire uh, a professional web developer, a website developer, and uh, we've done a lot of consulting with that person and we've, uh, we've been lining up material to put on our website and we're going to be launching our new website. We're, we're shooting for a target date of July 15th and it's going to be www.AndersonFallsHeritage.org. And um, it's going to have a lot of material that we haven't had before. We, we had a, a website before, and... Uh, we, we kind of wanted to reorganize things, and uh, our, our last website, it was a dot .com address, and we thought dot .org would be more appropriate for what we do. So uh, we're getting it ready, and uh, as I said, we're, we're hoping to have it uh, go live on the 15th of this month.
3: Okay. Uh, I know you mentioned that your board is meeting by Zoom. Is there any plans to sort of bring it back to be impersonal, or will there be a mixture where you have those who want to continue on Zoom and those who want to be present?
5: Well, we did go back to personal earlier this year, the past uh, past few months we've been doing it uh, in person. And we did try something with the meeting we just had, uh, toward the end of last month where uh, we met in person, but there was one, one member who wasn't able to be there. He, he's, uh, I guess he's uh, vacationing someplace else and he, he still wanted to be involved with the meeting. So we were able to get a laptop set up and get a Zoom, uh, a Zoom meeting set up. So he was actually able to be with us and participate via Zoom, uh, even though the rest of us were, were there in person.
3: And the final question I have is that I know a lot of people have talked about COVID uh, having this negative impact on their organization. Do you see any positives coming out of this experience?
5: Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Off the top of my head, I can't really think of... Uh, I mean I guess I guess you could say that it was uh, good for us to get the uh, the experience with uh, zoom and, and doing a meeting over zoom and uh, that that may be something that we can uh, make use of in the future and uh, it did give us a chance to kind of focus on our website uh, other than that i I wouldn't say there's I can't say there's much positive that I could say about it.
3: Okay, and the reason I ask that is that because some museums have actually been able to extend their reach uh, technologically because uh, people are not able to physically visit their museum. This is an opportunity maybe to showcase what you have and maybe at some point bring those individuals in when they have a chance to be in the area.
5: Well, I, I I do think our website is going to be uh, it's, it's going to be a lot more uh, e- elaborate, I guess I could say, uh, than than what we've had before, and so that I, I think that will help to showcase what what we have, oh. and and I hope it will uh, eventually bring more people in to see a, uh, see our museum in person.
3: Well, thank you, and uh, we're glad you. to sort of partner with you at this time for this podcast well, thank you i have one
1: more quick question okay. i'm glad that you're going to be opening up tomorrow i probably will be at the door at nine tomorrow morning because i'm very interested in looking at your archives because i have a theory that this house might have been designed by um isaac Gale perry and your uh Museum. The building was owned by James Mills because he inherited it from his father, Benjamin. And it was an Isaac. It was a uh, Seneca Perry and son, son being Isaac. They built that building. So I'm interested in going through your building and seeing what's there that's original, um, just to get an understanding more of their design um, uh, philosophies. I will be there
0: tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> well, Garth, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, being invited. That was excellent. I'm glad that uh, uh, Mr. Hood had a had a chance to join us. I actually look forward to um, to checking out um, uh, their museum and everything there as well. Okay. So now I think we're going to get right into our our mainline topic uh, for this month, um, and this was. A phenomenal interview um, that Robin will tell us about in just a minute. But um, I will let you know that it was um, it was uh, far ranging, um, and we don't want to uh, uh, we don't want to sell it short. So we're actually going to split this interview into two segments. We're going to play the first half of it this month in July, and then the back half, which it you know trust me, it gets better every minute that it goes on. Uh, we'll share the remainder of that and our in our following podcast. So uh, Robin, why don't you tell us what we have today?
1: We have an interview with Kenneth B. Morris, Jr., who was the great, great, great grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great, great grandson of Booker T. Washington. I met Kenny at a John Brown Liz function at the John Brown Forum several years ago, and he, like his ancestors, as a master orator and educator.
0: Excellent. So without any further ado, here's part one.
1: Okay, so I'm here with uh, some of my fellow board members. You can introduce yourself.
0: Okay. Yeah. Hi, hi Kenny. I'm uh, John Mitchell, uh, vice president of the board hi. and podcast producer. Hi, hi, John. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Good. Good. Thank you. I'm
1: Robert.
3: Treasurer,
1: newly elected. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear it here the period. Say it again. Wait a hi, I'm Barbara Chris, uh, Treasurer, newly
6: elected. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Chris. This is Andrea Bear. Oh. Can you hear me? Hello? yes i can
2: hear you now hi how are you this is andrea bear board member
6: hi andrea
1: hi
3: and uh my name is jackie madison and i am the president hi jackie hello
1: okay so john is going to queue us up this is for the main line do you have a segue for this yes
0: um So we're just gonna play like a quick musical tone there, uh, Kenny, and then uh, Robin will get after it there. So now it's time for our mainline segment.
1: Kenneth B. Morris Jr. of California is an entrepreneur specializing in travel and entertainment marketing. A public speaker, a lecturer in Liberation Theology at the University of Laverne near Los Angeles. Born in Washington, Morris was the oldest of three children of Nettie Washington, Douglas third, and Kenneth B. Morris Sr., an insurance broker. Kenneth studied at the University of California at Fullerton before lacing up his traveling shoes and touring <laughs> with the Young, is it Young American? Yeah, Young Americans. correct, yeah. Yeah, an yeah. international music theater group. And he actually had a chance to perform with Liberace. I never knew that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, he and his mother established the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative which is one of the reasons why we are speaking with him today. So, uh, Kenny, can you tell us why you wanted to establish this initiative?
6: I had um, spent many years really kind of disconnected from my lineage of being the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass and the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington, and there were a lot of reasons for that disconnect I would seen with the pressure. had done to those who came before me, and the few times that I told people of my relationship to those great American heroes, when I was younger, nobody ever believed me, and I never thought it was a a point worth arguing, and so if you can imagine being a a young kid, and when you have people that don't believe you, um, when you talk about your ancestry, so I had uh, spent many years in the travel industry. I had my own company and um, it was an advertising and marketing company and we catered to cruise lines developing corporate travel convention meeting and incentive programs and so i was happy to be a business owner a father of two daughters a husband now married for 37 years mm. and i was fine don't talk to me about uh, Douglas and washington connection but in 2005 i read a national geographic magazine and the cover story was 21st Century Slaves, and it was about human trafficking and modern-day slavery existing all over the world, including here in the United States. And I, like most people, thought slavery had ended with the work of Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, and uh, the Civil War, the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, and then, then the ratification of the 13th Amendment. But as I started to research the issue further, I found that there were men, women, and children enslaved around the world. Many of them living conditions that horrific as the slavery my ancestors had suffered through and survived. And I remember reading another article one night, and I was in my living room, and down the hallway I could hear my daughters getting ready for bed, you know, laughing and playing, about to get down on their knees and say their prayers. And the article I was reading was about a 12-year-old girl who was forced to be a sex slave in the brothels of Southeast Asia and service countless men almost every single night. And in that article, and I walked in to say goodnight to my girls, I had this moment where I couldn't look them in the eyes.
5: Mm.
6: And I couldn't look them in the eyes and walk away and not do something about this. And it was almost that moment, instantaneously, that you know, everything just started welling up inside of me, and I understood that I had this platform that my ancestors had built through struggle and through mm-hmm. sacrifice, and perhaps we could leverage the historical significance of my ancestry to do something about this. And so my mom and I, and business partner, Robert Fenn, started the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative in 2007, and we looked at the legacy of Frederick Douglass as a great abolitionist and Booker T. Washington as the great educator, and we had this aha moment where we could combine those legacies, abolition through education. And so we got started, and we immediately turned to schools and started working with um, students and teachers and administrators and parents, and uh, eventually developed the service learning civic engagement curriculum called History, Human Rights, and the Power of One. And the power of one is service in the community, civic engagement in the community. So that's, that's how we got started in 2007.
1: So how did COVID impact your mission?
6: Well, like most nonprofit organizations or many nonprofit organizations, um, it was uh, dip, it was a difficult year for, for us. Um, we had opened an office in Rochester, New York in early 2019 and Rochester, by the way, is Frederick Douglass's office hometown. It's where he published the North Star mm-hmm. newspaper and spent 25 years. Um, in that city doing his his most important work, his abolition work. And so we opened the office, and then about a year after that, we were shut down because of COVID, or the country was shut down because of COVID. And so we had to work virtually like many uh, people have done over the past year and a half or so. Um, But we were fortunate that we do have supporters and and donors, and we have received some grants that it didn't affect us. Um, negatively in a financial way. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just mostly operational um, issues and not being able to work together in the office and not being able to travel because we spend a lot of time in schools. And so most of the programs that I would normally have done in person in schools or speaking to organizations uh, went virtual. So I had a lot of Zoom (laughs) conferences like many people over the past year and a half.
1: Mm. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on for this episode of the Anirondack Lantern is because this will drop on Solomon Northup Day here. And you reminded me that uh, Frederick Douglass did write about uh, Solomon Northup and the Frederick Douglass newspaper It was the September 9th, 1853 edition, and this is an excerpt of what um, Frederick Douglass said about Solomon Northup. He said, think of it, for 30 years, a man with all a man's hopes, fears, and aspirations, with a wife and children to call him by endearing names of husband and father With a home, humble it may be, but still a home. Then for 12 years, a thing, a chattel, classified with mules and horses, it chills the blood. Mm. So I'm just thinking about your ancestor who escaped to freedom. He self-emancipated himself. And to this man who was born here in New York, he was born free and enslaved in Louisiana, and talking about today, you know, with the struggles and rights for human rights. What do you think the legacy of these men are today?
6: Well, that, that quote is, is really powerful. And I also remember that he wrote, um, he said, It is a strange history, it's true far stranger than fiction. And when you think about the Solomon Northup story and how he was a free man and he was torn from his his life, from his family, from his work, um, to be sent back or to be sent into slavery, whereas Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. And he would spend the first 20 years of his life enslaved. And then he would escape and go on to become a very important voice for abolition of slavery and then for women's rights and and human rights um, in general. So these stories are are very powerful, but I think that their legacies are important because history is important for a lot of reasons. I think history is most important because we need to know where we come from in order to know where we're headed. And history is not just about the past, but it's also about the present and it's about the future. And when you look at the legacies of these two men and their examples of courage, speaking truth to power, fighting for human rights, fighting the rights of their people who were enslaved, their brothers and sisters who were toiling away in chains, um, you know, that's a message that is as relevant today when we look at the challenges and the human rights issues that we face today. You know, we're living at a time when. This country as, is as divided as it's been a very, very long time with the racist, sexist, xenophobic rhetoric that's out there by some of some of our leaders. But imagine living at a time in the 19th century when your federal government said it's legal to own you
3: mm-hmm.
6: and illegal to teach you. I think many people would run away from that challenge, and, and thank goodness people like Frederick Douglass and Solomon Norfolk and many others didn't, or we would be a very different country today. Mm-hmm.
1: So I have another quote from Frederick Douglass. He said, education makes a man unfit to be a slave. Hmm. So I want all of us and you to think about that in the context of the pushback of certain leaders in our country on the state and national level, level against the education of our youth about the true American history. Some people call it critical race theory, which actually that isn't what that means, but there's a pushback about having American history being inclusive. So to me, it makes think that your initiative was even more important today.
0: Well, if we
6: look at the history of this country since it's founding and even prior to its founding, when the first enslaved Africans arrived here in 1619, um, you know, the history that has been told is is not truthful. It's a whitewashed, sanitized version of history where people of Native American descent and African descent are placed in in an inferior position by design to to prop up white supremacy. And so when you look at different periods throughout the history of this country, when uh, black people have been seen to have made some perceived progress. There's been a backlash or a whitelash and, and a pushback, and and we're seeing that right now. You know, after eight years of having an African American president, uh, we are seeing a, a pushback uh, against that. And you have people out there protesting. You know, the murders and lynchings of unarmed black people. Um, all around the country and people you know young and old and of uh, varying races that are demanding that the country do better and so when when we when we start talking about the country living up to the founding ideals it's exactly what frederick Douglass did today july 5th 1852 he gave a speech called what to the slave is your fourth of july in rochester new york at corinthian hall he gave that speech in front of 600 anti-slavery supporters. And, and he talks about the founding fathers, you know, being wise men. He said oppression makes the wise man mad. And then in the middle of that speech, he just lays into his audience because he does, while he appreciated their moral opposition to slavery, he did not feel that they were doing enough to end slavery. And How dare them celebrate Independence Day and ask him to speak mm. when the country was guilty of as he as he said in his speech, crimes and practices that would disgrace the nation's statuses. dare you invite me to speak today? And so he was holding out the country or, or calling out the country for the hypocrisy of celebrating freedom and liberty and justice while enslaving people of African descent on its blood drenched soil. And so when you look at the history of this country, and of course there were a lot of people that were upset with him, and they called him, you know, they said he wasn't patriotic and he didn't love his country. But the opposite was true. He did love his country, and he loved his country enough to to call it out, to do better. And so you see, um, you know, people out there protesting and demanding that the country live up to those founding ideals. And so naturally, there are going to be pushback from those that are in the power structure who want to suppress those voices.
1: So how did you spend your first national Juneteenth?
6: <laughs> huh. Oh, you know, I <laughs> had a, a, a friend of the family that had passed away several months prior to June and it just so happens that they and his his family planned his memorial service on that Saturday and so my wife and I spent I think about four or five hours at the memorial service and reception afterwards but I had um, contributed about three videos to virtual Juneteenth celebrations around the country and I didn't get a chance to watch any of those celebrations again because I was at the, the service but I hear that those programs went went very well.
1: So what do you think about having this now recognized? Because I hear that Texas and California were among the first states to observe it. So was it Juneteenth in your consciousness, like growing up? I know that you grew up in Washington, but I don't know how long you've been living in California because I had friends in California who were like celebrating this and like in the fifties and sixties. So I'm just yeah. not sure. It seems like Texas and California and maybe it's been a, one other place I can't remember right now. They Washington. were yeah. Were in the forefront of celebrating this event.
6: Yeah, Juneteenth has been in my consciousness, um, at least since we've been doing work at Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. And um, Dr. Ronald Myers, who has since passed away, and he he lived in Texas, he really led the fight for many, many years to make Juneteenth a holiday. And he had reached out to me again when we were just starting our organization around 2000 and 2008 um, to get our support for the work that he was doing in Washington, D.C., and the lobbying of legislators on Capitol Hill to make it a holiday. And so I had seen over a number of years how um, there were chapters all over this country that were able to advance legislation at the state level um, to, to recognize Juneteenth. And, and I saw it start to spread across the country. So I was not like it was only going to be a matter of time before it would be recognized at the federal level. And I'm just sorry that Dr. Myers didn't live to see his dream happen. Um, so I, and, and I've also participated in Juneteenth celebrations and commemorations uh, around the country over, over a number of years. So it's certainly within my consciousness. I think it's a, it's a great thing um, to have the holiday, but I, I think that we, more, we need more than just the symbolic holiday. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be some real work that's done in this country around racial equity and truth telling and reckoning with our past history because a lot of people want to talk about reconciliation and healing. I don't believe that we can get to a place where we can begin to reconcile and heal until we have a reckoning of our past and truth-telling. So that we you know the true history of this country, again, not the history that we've been given by those that are in power. And so to get back to what we were talking about earlier about This kind of backlash that we're receiving, we're seeing around critical race theory, and 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 people demanding that the country do better. My Juneteenth is is a good start, but there is a lot more that needs to be done than just giving us a symbolic holiday. Mm -hmm.
1: So, what are you planning um, for it with the initiative? Because I know COVID put things on pause, but I don't know if maybe your organization used the time to maybe. pivot in different directions and, you know, think about things maybe you hadn't thought about before. So what, do you have any upcoming events or anything that you'd like to get out there that make people aware of it?
6: Yeah, there are a number of things that we've we've been working on. And while COVID, you know, it forced us to be to work virtually, it didn't stop us from creating projects and initiatives. We did a number of projects over the past year and a half uh, for students. We did a last july 4th we did a live webinar where we asked students to write essays about frederick Douglass and um, racial prejudice and their their remedies for racial prejudice we also worked with an, an artist we call him uh, nicholas smith who created an image of frederick Douglass in a surgical mask the idea behind that was to uh, raise awareness about the disparities in how COVID was impacting communities of color and black people in, predict, in particular, and we wanted um, communities of color to know that there were resources available. Um, we also did a, a project that lifted up the life and legacy of my great 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 grandmother, Anna Murray Douglas, who was married to Frederick Douglas for 44 years. They had five children together and 21 grandchildren, and there would be no Frederick Douglas without Anna in his life. Mm-hmm. She was one of the first people to plant the seed of thought in his mind that he was not meant to be a slave. They met while he was a slave in Baltimore as a teenage boy, and she was the first person in her family to be born free. She was working as a domestic servant in Baltimore, and they met, and as they started to for each other and think about a life together, she said, Frederick, I don't want our children's father to be a slave. Mm. And had she not sold her personal belongings, had she not sewn the sailor's the size that he would wear... Who knows if he would have the courage to wear socks to escape from slavery at the age of 20 in 1838? And had that not happened, we would be a very different country sitting here today. If we didn't have the contributions of Frederick Douglass as a great abolitionist, and Anna was a conductor on the Underground Railroad out of their house in Rochester, New York. She helped to carry hundreds of freedom seekers to their freedom in Canada. She was outspoken. She was a feminist and an activist in her own right. Um, And so we did a project where we asked, and there are only three known photographs of Anna, whereas Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of the 19th century, and we know of at least 168 photos that he sat down for, we didn't have or we don't have very many images of Anna, and the three pictures that exist uh, are of her as um, an older lady. So we asked students to draw and paint catch what she might look like. And uh, that was really a great project. Uh, from that. So, so we did the essay contest. We did the art contest. Uh, we did a 4th of July webinar. And um, and, a, and a number of other things that we're working on right now. There's a current project with a company called Record. And it's a platform that was founded by the actor um, Joseph gordon levitt And it's a place where people from all over the world can collaborate on music, art, um, just anything creative to come together. And it's it's really um, a a wonderful platform. And so we've partnered with them on a project called the Virtual Monument Project. And so we're going to be creating 10 projects um, that will be virtual, that will celebrate black excellence Black history, Black culture, Black music. And we just kicked off that project on June 29th. Um, and the first of those virtual monuments is going to be people reading excerpts from Frederick Douglass's speech that I mentioned, "What to the Slave, it is the 4th of July. And so we'll have people contributing video excerpts, audio excerpts. They'll, con- they'll contribute art and music. And we're going to create this first of 10 virtual monuments and so for any of your audience that are listening right now, they can go to um, hitrecord.com and then click the tab, the Virtual Monuments Project, and they'll be able to see, see what we're doing and also contribute to the project.
1: I also hear that your hands have been immortalized. You want to talk about that uh, process and project?
6: Yeah, they, my hands have been immortalized a couple of times. Um, in 2018, it was Frederick Douglass's mm-hmm. bicentennial year, and we worked with um, one of our board members, Carvin Ison, on a project called Re- Re-Energizing the Douglass Legacy. And we erected, oh gosh, I think we're up to 17 statues of Frederick Douglass all over the city of Rochester, and they're, places, and they're in places that were significant mm-hmm. in his life. Uh, there's one at Mount Hope Cemetery where he's buried. There's one at Corinthian Hall where he gave his of July Uh, There's one at the Talman Building, where he published the North Star newspaper. And that was really a great project. And Carvin came up with the idea to make a cast or a mold of my hands and to incorporate hands into the statue. Mm -hmm. And so that's one, one place. And then in 2000 and it was 2020, the Maryland State House erected statues of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and um, the Frederick Douglass statue has my hand um, incorporated to to that as well.
0: Okay, and as we mentioned earlier, um, we are splitting the interview with uh, Kenneth uh, Morris into two sections. Um, If you enjoyed that first section, trust me, you do not want to miss the second half of uh, the Kenneth Morris uh, interview there. I think that, you know, everyone enjoyed everything that he shared so far. Wow,
2: I'm still, I'm still amazed. I'm just in awe of all that he's doing and the foundation, um, the responsibilities that they picked up because he didn't, they didn't have to do any of this. So many people have this heritage and this um, generational uh, you know, relationship but they don't go ahead and do anything much. But for what he's doing, God bless him.
0: Absolutely, and some of the initiatives that he shares in yes. the back half of the conversation, I can't wait for you all to hear about that. Yes. Okay, so we are going to end there today. Um, I want to thank um, my fellow board members, Robin Cardell, Andrea Bear, Jackie Madison, and Barbara Chris, and we're going to go out today listening to the Lake Champlain Esquire. Mm-hmm. If you would like to learn more about Renee Moore and her work involving Solomon Northup Day, please visit her website at www.solomonnorthupday.org. You would also like to correct the address for the Anderson Falls Heritage Museum. The correct address is www.andersonfalls.org. Lastly, the Champlain Valley Centennial Suffrage Auto Tour will run from July 31st through August 24th. The auto tour will start in Plattsburgh at the Clinton County Historical Museum and proceed north to the North Star Underground Railroad Museum. There will be reenactments and speeches of suffragists to include Susan Anthony, Ida B. Wells, and Portia Blackiston. We at the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adirondack Lantern Podcast and journeying through yesteryear and now as the North Star Underground Railroad Museum at our Sable Chasm keeps the lantern burning, lighting Freedom's Road.